This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Lobster. Do you like putting the flesh of a giant bug in your mouth? Eat some lobster today. bonus episode of the Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we will be joined by Leo Brother, a junior at Elon University, and Valina Georgie, a senior at College of Charleston, for a bipartisan conversation about a previous episode. You might remember Leo and Valina from way back in episode three on Yosemite. As with all these bonus episodes, both of them are new to these topics, so you'll get to hear their initial reactions and see what kind of common ground they find. This week, Valina picked the episode, and she chose... Episode 21, ADHD. So go listen to episode 21 first, and then come back here, because we've got a fun episode for you. But first we need to cover some of the latest environmental news. Another wildfire has hit California this week, shocking many given that it is in the middle of January. What's even more shocking is that moments later, all of the popsicles, snowmen, and those industrial refrigerators you walk inside to get your vegetables at Costco also caught fire. Underwater explorers recently videotaped a siphonophore off Australia that, at 390 feet, is the longest organism ever recorded. Just don't trust his Tinder profile where he says he's 390 feet 2 inches. For the first time, wind power overtook coal power in the energy portfolio of Texas in 2020. And while some found that surprising, they really shouldn't, considering Santa did move Ashley and Braden onto the nice list this year. A new report reveals that the release of microplastic fibers from washing clothes is linked to pervasive plastic pollution in the Arctic. On a related note, every new college freshman doing their own laundry for the first time is now a staunch anti-plastic pollution advocate. In a last effort to avoid getting axed, the Keystone XL Oil Pipeline Project recently pledged zero carbon emissions in constructing their project, making it the most environmentally friendly pipeline project ever. In other news, the wolf from Little Red Riding Hood has pledged to not eat grandmother while he waits to eat Little Red Riding Hood, making him the most human-friendly wolf ever. A new scientific report shows that underwater seagrass appears to trap plastic pollution in natural bundles of fiber called Neptune balls, which eventually remove the plastic from the ocean through beaching. Which is interesting, because when you think about it, Neptune and balls actually have a lot in common. They're both round, they're both blue, and most importantly, they're both right next to Uranus. A coalition of 50 countries recently committed to protecting 30% of the Earth's land and ocean by 2030. To the other 70%, you unfortunately did not get a rose. Please say your goodbyes and go. An ethanol plant in Nebraska has been identified as the cause of nearby bee colony collapses, birds and butterflies becoming disoriented, and humans and dogs experiencing illnesses, because the corn being burned had been sprayed with toxic pesticides, leading to a waste product described as a slimy lime green mash full of harmful chemicals. So stay tuned for the next big children's book, Bartholomew and the Ooblack 2, Bardy and Jess Neonicotinoids. 
Architect Frank Gehry just proposed a plan to create nature trails and bike paths along the L.A. River, claiming that the river is a great tourist attraction for Los Angeles residents. Said the rest of America, Guys, relax, it's just a puddle. Shell has pulled out of a venture with the U.K. to build a sustainable aviation fuel plant, refocusing their energy to a different sustainable aviation fuel project in Canada. I guess poutine and donuts make for a much better airplane fuel than bad teeth and people saying in it. In an effort to reduce the number of innocent sharks killed after shark attacks, marine biologist Eric Klua invented a form of DNA profiling called bite printing to track and kill just the sharks causing problems. That's great, Eric, but I think I can save you some time. Kevin O'Leary is always the shark causing problems. If you've been planting vegetable and herb gardens during quarantine, watch out because seed companies are starting to report seed shortages due to the increased demand this year. Unless you want cilantro seeds, of course, since no one has ever bought a cilantro seed in the history of gardening. Do you wish you had to eat your dinner with tools in a bib? If so, lobster's for you. With lobster, you can spend two hours trying to suck meat out of a giant ocean bug while knowing the fishing equipment used to catch it likely put nearby endangered whale species in danger. What's more, lobster fisheries routinely produce more carbon emissions than chicken, pork, and sometimes even more than beef. So you're contributing to climate change too. What a deal. Lobster, because shrimp is just too easy to eat. Welcome back to this week's bonus episode. I am joined by Leo Brother and Valina Georgie. Um, so this week was uh, Valina's pick. And Valina, what episode did you choose? I chose the ADHD episode. And why did you choose that one? Well, um, it looked interesting. Not only do I have ADHD, but I talk about it also a lot in stand-up. And um, I thought it was kind of neat, like going over environmental attributions because it was neat to see it like kind of disprove some of the classic like stereotypes, causes, etc. And um, also discuss how ADHD can affect you depending on your socioeconomic status, depending on your race, um, and like how you can access treatment, how you're perceived, stuff like that. And as someone with experience with ADHD, had you kind of run into some of the misconceptions that the episode talked about? Yeah, definitely. There's the classic, like, everyone thinks we're, like, it's shiny, and uh, that it's just basically kind of like a, I can't sit down and do this thing, when, oh my god, it's so much worse. I feel like it's been explained better that, like, it's, like, a lot of times it can be, like, there's one thing, there's this one task you have to do, and it would make your day and your life immensely better, and you can't. You are not allowed to. And it's hard to explain beyond that, but I feel like it's gotten better in more recent years with connectivity of the internet. People can like kind of learn to explain why it is different and what makes it debilitating versus like just classic, like forgetting to do things or being late. Yeah. Leo, what were your uh, thoughts coming off the episode? I mean, I had a, a similar reaction and a similar experience. I mean, I have a, a history of ADHD in my family and a history of symptoms as well. So it was something that I can relate to on a personal level and something that I've experienced. I think it's fair to say that a lot of people in our generation have some experience either with ADHD symptoms themselves or in the context of people with symptoms. It's becoming a lot more prevalent in our society. And I was completely blind to the idea that our environment had anything to do with it, that the presence of neurotoxins in our atmosphere 
could play as much of a role as it did. I was sort of conditioned to believe that it was based on environmental stimuli, more along the lines of a generation raised on the internet with access to instant gratification. So as with a lot of Sweaty Penguin episodes that I've thumbed through over the last few months, just looking at things through the context of climate change, through the context of environmental shifts, adds a new layer to already really complex and really important discussions. Couldn't say it much better than that. <laughs> I mean, I was definitely, uh, I didn't realize those environmental components of ADHD either prior to researching the episode and talking to uh, Dr. Claudio and reading her research. And which was surprising to me because I'd heard about neurotoxins all the time. And I guess it never clicked that neurotoxins <laughs> cause neurological damage. Um, and it was also interesting for me as someone, I think kind of on the flip side from both of you where I had thought I had ADHD symptoms and I was having a lot of trouble with reading and focusing. And I was like, let me take a test. And I took a test and they're like, yeah, no, that's not ADHD. So when we talk about the environmental stimuli like mercury, lead, VTEX, all these neurotoxins, it makes it tough to talk about what do you do to fix it? because there's just so many things. None of them are a sole contributor. None of them are a primary contributor. But what do you do to fix it? I guess what solutions that we talked about stuck out to you or did you find interesting? Well, I think one of the first things that, that like, or one of the things that kept ringing through my mind throughout this conversation was like, we shouldn't have to be worried about ADHD to be incentivized to get neurotoxins out of the atmosphere. It should just be like, we have all the evidence we need we're seeing our planet dying around us. Just, we should know neurotoxins are bad. Like anything we can do to reduce emissions on any scale. It's like, congratulations, lowering cases of ADHD would be icing on a very, very large cake. This should not be like the part where we're like, maybe we should start thinking about this. Maybe we should start worrying about this stuff. I definitely agree that like, this is kind of like the, just another tack on the list of, generally working towards better environmental solutions. I think it's something that almost makes me freeze up sometimes just because it's so horrifying, but it still is so common in such a country that considers itself such a first world country that like even, gosh, I think talking about Flint um, and I'm sure plenty of other cities, just the fact that they cannot get clean, basic water. And of course it's having all these terrible outcomes. That is such a basic baseline thing to provide your citizens with. And it's kind of one of those things that makes me want to rattle my brain because how could you, how could you not have enough compassion to want people to have clean drinking water that doesn't give them a whole host of problems? Yeah. It just rattles me, I think, a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I think the perspective you're coming in with is similar to my perspective when I was researching and writing with the episode because like it wasn't so much a single issue as it was a culmination of several other issues that contribute. And I think I made a joke about it being like the Sweaty Penguin Cinematic Universe episode. Like we had done an episode on lead, an episode on mercury, like all different things were playing into it. And Valina, you were talking about how it still exists in this country. You also mentioned earlier how it affects people of different races and socioeconomic uh, statuses. I'm curious what your, uh, had your perspective shifted on that at all after the episode? I mean, it kind of just, I feel like it just sort of solidified it that just because, I mean, in a country that's so based on money 
and money getting you even access to basic things like food, water, shelter, when you've had like this socioeconomic and racial disparity that leads to further socioeconomic disparity for people of color, especially Black people, that just really sends you down the rabbit hole. Like it allows for such crazy extremes in one country. And I feel like this is one of those things that was just another highlight of that. It's just another like blaring symptom or after effect of that. Yeah, um, unfortunately, it didn't really come as much of a surprise to me. I think just being aware of the socioeconomic disparities between people of different racial backgrounds in America, it almost seems like a logical conclusion that people of lower socioeconomic status wouldn't have access to the same quality of health care, and as a result, would suffer from any medical condition on a larger scale. Um, one of the things that I sort of associated with ADHD that you didn't really touch on in the episode was uh, gender correlations, because at least in my experience, and I'm not sure if you guys can relate to this, but I feel like ADHD is generally categorized as a predominantly male disorder. Like, I feel like we're all sort of expecting to see hyperactive kids in elementary school who can't sit still and are more often than not just put on Ritalin or Adderall. I feel like that's a pretty common narrative, and I'd love to see data on how heavily uh, that should be used when discussing how to treat ADHD on a national level. Yeah, when I researched, there were like dozens of misconceptions about ADHD, and you actually hit on one of them. There isn't really any gender correlation, um, but it is perceived as a more male disorder, even though it isn't in reality. So it's really interesting, I think, to see how there's all these different ways society looks at it. There's people who think it's because of bad parenting, which it's not. There's people who think it's because of watching SpongeBob, which it's not. Like there were just so many different things. And then to actually see like, okay, well, what is causing it? Well, there's genetics, there's biological factors, and then there's the environment, which I don't think anyone was really talking about, at least that I had heard. So really interesting point. Did your research turn up any sort of correlation between like technological exposure and ADHD? Because to me, it seems like I have no medical background, obviously, but it seems kind of intuitive that a generation that is growing up so significantly on screens with so much instant gratification and the ability to sort of change sources of stimuli so quickly would almost be conditioned in a way to be more restless and to be more in need of new sources of attention. The research that has been done on technological exposures, I know that some have found what they refer to as ADHD-like symptoms, where you'll say like, oh, you, even with SpongeBob, like, oh, you stick a kid in front of SpongeBob for an hour, he's going to be a little more restless. But that doesn't mean they have a disorder that will persist through their entire life. Whereas ADHD, it's also not something you outgrow. It's something that stays with you through adulthood, as I'm sure yep, both of you know. sure does. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. so I, I don't have a great answer for you, but I hope that gives a little context. The Leo, I think that's a good uh, question or good question slash point because uh, you're right. I think it is definitely something people associate. And I, I think it unfortunately becomes a tool to kind of weaponize against ADHD or people who say they have ADHD and try to explain that because it seems like something that's kind of your fault if people spending a lot of time on technology are exhibiting some kind of symptom that's related to it, even if it's not actually having it, even if it's not the rest of it, 
but just because it's the classic things like not being able to pay attention for very long or like, well, this has to be all of it. Um, so yeah, I think that's very, I think that's a huge potential to be harmful, unfortunately. No, I agree. I think that's a good point about there being a perception that it's someone's fault, either the person or a parent or family member or like that I don't think is ever really the case. Um, again, bad parenting, there have been studies that have linked it to ADHD-like symptoms, but not anything that persists long-term. So we've talked about lead and mercury. We also talked about BTEX, but lead and mercury, I think, I think were two interesting ones because those ones are a little different because we've known that they are neurotoxins for a very long time. And the U.S. actually has a lot of regulation on them. So lead paint, it really isn't used as much anymore. However, we still have tons of houses and buildings that were built before the 1970s that are still there and still have lead paint. And they are disproportionately in lower income and minority communities. Um, Children are not required to get tested for lead poisoning at any point. Landlords are not required to test their buildings for lead. So even though there is regulation, it hasn't fixed the issue because obviously lead persists. It doesn't just vanish when we ban it. There's all the lead that's out there is still there. Similar with mercury, we've put in a lot of regulation and there's a global uh, convention regulating it, but it's still there and there are still sources like coal plants and gold mines that are emitting it. So for toxins like that, how do you, when we have regulation already, I think there's kind of a temptation to be like, okay, it's being fixed, like we can sit back. So like, how do you kind of push the needle forward when there's kind of a temptation to feel like it's being fixed? I feel like it's definitely clear that the regulations are not enough because it's still a problem. If the regulations were enough, we wouldn't be finding these issues. Um, and it's one of those things that it's hard because there are already regulations, but they're clearly not equitable um, regulations. And the fact that now it's like equal, it's like, okay, no more lead, but it doesn't go back and provide fixes or changes for all those things that were built with lead or even necessarily seeking them out and just trying to uh, make the quality of life better for people living in like areas that haven't been replaced with lead stuff. And I guess, my idea is maybe more aggressive policies, like aggressive in actually directly combating that, uh, you know, replacing lead houses, testing, like finding, um, finding areas or cities that don't, that don't get it fixed. But then again, that's a question of who that should fall on, frankly. But I don't know, providing funding for it, you know, something along those lines, as I feel like the only way I can think of, besides like convincing people to care about other people more. <laughs> If there is a demand for something, that demand will be met with a supply. So as long as they're not being actively rooted out with the severest of punishments, they won't even be minimalized, let alone banned. So I do think that we're headed in the right direction. And it's just a question of how aggressive we want our government to be, how aggressive we want regulatory bodies to be in terms of cracking down on these things that we know are bad. Obviously, like you were saying, regulating something doesn't always make it go away. So how then do you think legislators could say, okay, we don't want lead, 
we've banned lead paint. There's still houses with lead paint on it. Um, do you feel like they need to take a more proactive approach? Do you think it comes more in lawsuits? Like, how do you think uh, they would move forward? Well, I mean, the outright way to do it would be to retrofit any building in the United States built before 1975 or whatever year it was that lead paint was banned. If we were legally required to tear down all those buildings and rebuild them with safer building practices, obviously that would end the problem of lead paint as far as we know. But that becomes a massive economic challenge in terms of how many buildings there are in this country that would need to be destroyed and rebuilt. And it's really a difficult task. I think that's one of the main complaints that people have with the Green New Deal. So that's probably the extreme end of the spectrum. I mean, closer towards the uh, more passive end of the spectrum is just checking for lead in buildings and giving people that option, letting people know this house was built before a certain time. Don't move here. Obviously, there are socioeconomic ramifications of that, where maybe people are in a financial position where they can only afford to move into a building that's older and they have lead paint. But at the very least, having people give them peace of mind and conduct testing on those older buildings so they can know for certain what kind of house they're living in. And then there might be an option for some sort of program in place where if you have younger children, especially, and you're in a lower income bracket, providing assistance for safer, lead-free housing might be another option. You have a very good point that it needs to be tested before anything else. When we did the lead paint episode, I remember that testing was landlords did not have to test their buildings um, if it was built before whatever year, um, at least here in Massachusetts, I remember because I had this experience. I got what was a lead paint disclosure form, which is basically saying this building may or may not have lead paint. We haven't tested it. I think it also said something along the lines that it isn't a big deal unless you're under the age of six, which is not true. If you're under age six, it's this bad. If you're over age six, it's a teeny bit not as bad, but still bad. But then there comes the question of like, okay, if you don't have to test, you only have to disclose it. Whereas if you do test and you do find that there's lead paint, then you have to tell people there's lead paint in your building or you have to pay a lot of money to get it out. There comes the question of, okay, whose responsibility is it to be testing these buildings, figuring out if there's lead paint? and paying to remove it or the other option is sealing it in because if you remove it then there's all the lead dust that goes into the soil like there's still lead so it's always tough but i guess that's a very long-winded way of asking whose responsibility is this is it landlords is it homeowners is it the government or is it some combination it's tough especially once again in a country that is so it feels like everything has to have a monetary incentive, even if it is for the greater good, even if it's going to make so many people's lives better, there has to be some kind of monetary incentive for people to even have the funding to start it. Like I want to say in the past where office buildings have been uh, incentivized to switch to greener uh, practices, whether it's like better light bulbs, um, low, low flow toilets. Um, I think they get some kind of tax break or maybe property tax break. Uh, and that's kind of my rough idea, but it's such a tricky thing. And I feel like it's definitely not enough to just test for it because even if you tell someone uh, who's moving into a house because it's their only option, hey, this house has lead in it. Uh, if it's their only option, they're gonna be like, well, I guess we're living in this lead house because we don't got nowhere else to go. So 
Like there definitely has to be, I feel like follow up for that from someone, but you're right. It's hard to know who, because it doesn't seem like many of the people directly responsible for putting lead in these houses are even necessarily around anymore. Yeah. And I remember from that episode, uh, the expert uh, Rick Reebstein was saying like, there are people who want to like go after these construction companies and lead paint companies with lawsuits for all the damage they've caused. And then the conversation we were talking about it, it was like, okay, you can put all your energy into that, but there's still lead there. <laughs> so like, <laughs> it's definitely really tricky. Leo, I'll ask if you have any response to the who's responsible. The answers really fall into a couple of basic categories, either the government or private citizens. And if we're looking at the private market, generally we run into the problem of price increases and pricing people out of low-income homes. So if this problem does sort of fall into the hands of landlords or even into tenants themselves or homeowners, then we're talking about a significant price increase to, to make your home safe to live. But then on the other hand, you run into the problem of running things to the government. And then we run into the question of that also takes infrastructure on some level. Do we have the budget for that? Do we have the capacity to do that the right way? Do we know that we're doing it well? So it's a difficult problem to face. And as always, I think the answer falls somewhere in the middle with some sort of combination of the two. But based on my minimal knowledge of how these things work, it seems like time is the best way to go, at least, and that it seems like there are fewer houses with lead paint now than there were 10 years ago, and there were more 10 years ago, or more 20 years ago than there were 10 years ago, and so on and so forth. So I guess that's my piece that I'll throw on that matter. Yeah, for sure, that makes a lot of sense. I also don't want to leave out, I think we talked most about uh, BTEX pollutants in the episode, just because that was uh, Dr. Claudio's research, and I think we kind of already touched on like when there's no regulations, I think both of you felt like we got to start working on that. But I think she, I remember she said something interesting in the interview, which was the BTEC studies are a lot newer um, and these links are more recently discovered. Um, But I think she was kind of saying like, we know enough now to get moving. Let's stop putting all our energy into doing more studies and start actually regulating it. Um, I'm curious what your guys' take on that was, because I was definitely struck by hearing someone in science saying, like, no studies, let's get moving. I mean, I understand the sentiment that was expressed that, like, it definitely is time to do something. And I think that, frankly, the U.S. is doing better than a lot of people realize in terms of reducing emissions. I think it's also important to learn what all of these effects are. So that if we have societal problems like we do, we know how to attribute them to the right causes. So like we could, if this study weren't done, we could have been running around for decades trying to cure ADHD in the wrong ways, attributing it to SpongeBob cartoons and uh, overexposure to screen time or bad parenting. So like I understand the sentiment and I agree. We know enough action is required. It's no longer encouraged, but Information is good too. And knowing what causes different phenomena is an important part of addressing them. No, I totally agree. I don't think there's any way you could say one is more important than the other. Obviously, you need the information to take action. 
definitely. And then something I kind of realized or was thinking um, or referencing in my head was you got to have, you got to be doing both. You got to start pushing and you've got to be doing studies because I feel like a lot of times, um, or it seems like often the reason that people are using these harmful things in the first place is because they're the cheapest option. And getting private companies, things based on profit, to use a more expensive option because it's better for the greater good is like pulling teeth, I feel like. It is, uh, I just remember, and this is different, but um, similar, like people talking about uh, getting tobacco warnings and finally getting like big messages out there that like smoking is bad for you. There had to be so much research and so much time um, and so many tobacco companies pushing back and saying like, well, this could have been caused by this. And so I think Leo's right in the fact that like information is good because when you're battling something that's monetarily convenient, you got to have as much backup as you can for them to change it. Yeah. And I think some of the studies that have at least intrigued me the most are these studies that can actually say like ADHD is costing the economy X million billion dollars. I don't remember the exact numbers from the episode, but I remember they were very significant. I remember in the Mercury episode too, it was like regulating Mercury saved the economy like half a billion dollars or something. So it's definitely, we talk about these monetary struggles and obviously there's economic challenges because people do profit off them, but overall it does make a difference. Yeah, that reminds me of another thing I wanted to bring up is that obviously um, working to mitigate ADHD is an important cause. Working to help people with this disorder is an important cause. But it also might be in our best interest as a country to start maybe rethinking our education system or even our, our sort of work life to accommodate what is a very upward trend among our sort of population. So maybe rethinking the way that we teach so that it is more accommodating to kids who get restless sitting down for long periods of time, shortening class periods, more subjects, more recess time, things like that to let kids run off steam. Just in general, not necessarily pretending that a problem doesn't exist, but adapting to it and working our way around it so that we can make the most of a situation that while we want to help reduce I think is going to exist for the foreseeable future. That's very well put. That's a very good um, forward way of thinking. Like, obviously this won't cause this problem to go away. And I think you're, you're right. That is ideal. If we can provide new infrastructure and building uh, to start accommodating these things. And then we can actually like tap into potential of people with ADHD or people with other disorders that haven't been able to provide as much because they haven't had that support. This was a really interesting conversation. I appreciated hearing both of your perspectives. Valina and Leo, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it was good to be back here and see both of you guys. Thanks for having me, Ethan. Love seeing you guys. That wraps up this week's bonus episode of The Sweaty Penguin. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. And if you're a fan of the show, please tell a friend about it or leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so more people find the show. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.
Today's episode was written by Ethan Brown and Caroline Kale, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Robert Branning, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to the Boston University Build Lab. For bonus content, follow us on Facebook at Sweaty Penguin News, Twitter at Sweat Penguin Pod, or Instagram at Sweaty Penguin Pod.